All right, so when I speak on sexuality, the first thing I always do is I say, what is sexuality? So give me some thoughts on that. Give me your feedback, and then we'll, uh, I'll show you some definitions to help us speak of it a little bit. But when I say that word, when you hear the word sexuality, what, do you, what are we talking about? What do you expect that we're talking about? The interaction between a male and a female. All right, interaction between male and female. Keep going. There's a lot. Intimate physical interaction All right. between two people. All right. Some sort of physical intimacy added into the equation here. I also think about the sexual orientation. Sure. Yep. Interestingly, uh, when I, so I, my dissertation research was on this subject, and that was the first question I asked the 25 people that I interviewed uh, in my dissertation. That, they were all college students, that was the most common response, was something to do with sexual orientation. But it's, it's, it's bigger than that, it's bigger than uh, a lot of these things, and here's why, here's why I usually start with this definition from the World Health Organization. I'm not really concerned that you even read it, but you may not be able to. I just want you to see all the words. Uh, words like identity and orientation and pleasure and intimacy, things like values and behaviors and practices, roles and relationships, things to do with experience and things to do with uh, emotion. And then there's cultural factors, psychology and uh, economic factors, political factors, legal factors. Sexuality is a big, big conversation. And we can't afford to sit out that conversation as God's church. We have been for a long time because it's uncomfortable. Uh, and in the meantime, the rest of culture has taken that conversation light years ahead of us. And so now we're in kind of a position of playing catch-up a little bit, and uh, while that's not a, a great position to be in, it's where we are, but we, we've got to start. And thankfully, and, and praise be to God, in, in many places around the world, and many people are starting the conversation, uh, but we need to keep pressing forward with it. Uh, here's a definition that I have generated, just to kind of put a few less words on the screen and make it a little bit easier to capture, um, which is that sexuality is, is all the ways that we express our God-given desire to connect uh, and we do that spiritually, emotionally, and physically. In other words, it's something about being a whole person. Uh, that sexuality is both embodied, in other words, it's the thing that we do individually, it's something about us and, and what it means to be ourselves, and it's embedded and that it's something to do with our culture and the space that we live in uh, in the world. Right? And as we all know, we live in what must be the most hypersexualized time and space in history. Not that we have invented sexuality or even sexual uh, variations or deviances in any way. Right? Those things have been going on for years and years and years. Uh, see Leviticus 18. But it's public and it's visible and it's everywhere that we go uh, and in every uh, bit of media and entertainment that we consume. And so it's embedded in our culture and thus we have to, we have to reckon with that as the church. It's both holy and mundane. In other words, there's a part of sexuality that is in, incredibly sacred, right? that does something, and frankly, every human in the world, whether they have any knowledge of God or not, recognizes that there is something about connecting deeply with somebody else, whether that's romantic or in friendship. Right? And sexuality extends to both. There is something about connecting with somebody else that is deeply holy. It gives us a sense of something greater and more important than ourselves. And then it's mundane. It's physical. There are parts of it that are gritty and parts of it that are very earthy, parts of it that are very common. 
many of you are probably married. I've been married for 23 years. There are days when our marriage is just about as mundane as it could possibly be. Right. Got a whole other sermon on that uh, called Marriage is Like Compost. Uh, but it's, but that's where, that's where the, the growth happens, right? is in that mundane getting through the day sometimes, uh, and, and sometimes even the rotten stuff. That's where life can, can sometimes sprout up in really unexpected ways. But sexuality is all of that, so it's, it's a big conversation. Now, it's not all there is to being human. And that's an important line to draw. But it is a substantial part of being human. And because it's such a substantial part of being human, the church has to have a witness in that conversation. We have to have a voice there, certainly for our own people, uh, and then extending beyond our walls as well. So here's what I want to do today. I'm going to give you three of what I think are, are some of the most substantial biblical themes. Okay? Just chose them, uh, frankly, because they, they work with what I'm thinking of. Uh, but they are, I think, three of the, the meatier themes that we can see uh, in theology. And I want to talk about how sexuality weaves into each of these themes so that hopefully by the time we're done, we can see that we are people who have good news to share with the world about what it means to be sexual beings, to be beings who are created to connect with an innate desire to find connection in somebody that allows us to experience something that's bigger than who we are. Right. So here we go. The first one is sexuality as exile. Exile, I'm sure you know. One of the most important themes in all the Bible that runs uh, from Genesis really all the way uh, through Revelation. Uh, that God, uh, as he introduces himself to Israel, as he brings Israel out of Egypt, he introduces himself as uh, the Lord God who, who brought them up out of Egypt, the land of slavery, and that actually becomes the most common way that God's referred to all throughout the Old Testament. Like That's his primary identity, the God who rescues his people. And as we get into the New Testament, we see that same theme being replayed. We see it being uh, reset, especially Matthew uh, resets Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that we've ever seen in the story of the Old Testament, and particularly the one to lead us into a new promised land and out of slavery of all kinds. And so we see this, and we feel this, and, and I think we all feel this individually, right? that we, uh, we know that it's a, a fundamental part of being human in a fallen world, right? uh, that we know that no matter what's going on around us and in us, we, we kind of have this innate sense, and I think people who are not Christian have the same innate sense that things just aren't, aren't all that they should be. That we were created to connect with God, but at the same time, we, we don't quite get there. And if you're outside of the church, you know you're created to connect with somebody. But can we ever quite find the fulfillment there? In fact, I want to share with you uh, some thoughts from Lisa Graham McMinn, who's one of my favorite theologians uh, on sexuality. She says, these are two fundamental truths that you need to know about sexuality. One is that we are made for relationship, but fundamentally incapable of finding full satisfaction for our longings. Okay? That God created us with an innate desire, part of who we are, and that desire can only really be fulfilled by him. But ever since the thing with the apple in the garden, we haven't been close enough to God to fully experience that. And now praise be to God that through the work of Jesus Christ and in the body of Christ and in the grace of Christ, we can approximate that. We can get senses of it. Right? There are times where we can experience 
something that echoes the connection and the relationship that we so desire. Um, but that only can, or that can come most fully uh, through and with the body of Christ. But even in that, we still can't quite get there. Right? Now, you're probably church people, that's why you're at Pepperdine at 8.30 in the morning, right? You may have had the experience that things aren't always awesome at church, right? Now, there may be days where you walk out of, of some time with your brothers and sisters and you say to yourself, that was, that was exactly what the church should be. Where I come from, that doesn't happen every day. Right? There may be days where your marriage, when you go to bed at the end of the night, you think that is exactly what marriage is supposed to be. And there may be days where you go to bed at the end of the night and you think, well, we'll just try again tomorrow. Right? In all of our relationships, no matter how good they are, we still never quite get to that thing that we're wired to be searching for, which is ultimate connection with God, because we can only find it in the presence of God. But we're searching for it, and the whole world is searching for it, and most of the world doesn't know they're searching for it. But we do. We do, and so uh, the whole world is scrambling around trying to figure out and trying to find fulfillment in million, you know, a million different experiences and experiments uh, that will never, ever fulfill uh, that itch and that drive inside of them. And so we're in this kind of relational exile because we're apart from our Creator. And until we get fully with Him, that's still going to be the case. But fortunately, we're not the first people to be in exile. It's happened before. Uh, and we happen to have, uh, by the grace of God, the story of His people and their work in exile. And everybody, of course, knows Jeremiah uh, 2911. It's on everybody's magnets and posters and bumper stickers that God says to his people in exile I know the plans I have for you plans to prosper you not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future but sometimes we forget that right before that is, is 29 7 where he also says and you know what you're going to do you know where you know where you're going to find you know how you're going to see that plan fulfilled and experienced fully it's when you engage in the culture that you're in when you pray for that culture, when you work for that culture. And so for us, as we sit here in the 21st century, we are people who, first of all, have to individually and collectively as God's people figure out what in the world we're doing with our bodies, with our ability to relate, with our ability to connect, and our drive and our need to be fulfilled. And then we have to work for the good of the places that we are from uh, because we, we're not where we should be, right? Uh, we all know uh, that we are citizens of heaven, but at the same time we make our homes in places like Malibu, if you're one of those people. Uh, Chicago, where it's warmer than Malibu, <laughs> right now. Uh, Oklahoma City, other places around the world. Right? Uh, but we, we, have to, we have to work for the places where God has us uh, so that those cities and those places and all the other uh, dots and all the other maps that are so inundated with narratives about sexuality that, that lean toward abuse and lean toward uh, using other people for our gratification, lean toward temporary solutions to eternal problems. Somebody's got to have a better answer for that. And, and we're that somebody. Uh, we are the people who have to find a way to engage our world 
uh, in a better conversation about sexuality. Uh, I have a friend, Chris. Yep, you can kind of see those. They're a little bit hard, hard to see on that screen. I have a friend, Chris. He's a tattoo guy. He's my tattoo guy. He runs a ministry called Inc. 180 uh, that's in the Chicago area where we're from. He tattoos schmucks like me for the sake of having enough money to provide free tattoo servicing for uh, those coming out of gangs and sex trafficking. Uh, he has a, a wall in his studio where all of those who he's tattooed for those reasons place their handprints uh, and maybe say something about their stories. He shares very little of it publicly because these are people who have come out of some pretty difficult and dangerous situations. But what I love about Chris is he's found a way to engage this problem in our culture, and particularly as he and I have, have talked over the years about his work with those coming out of uh, the sex industry. And you can see a couple examples up here. But what they have found, or what he, what he speaks so uh, intelligently and uh, articulately of, is they're, I mean, they're freed from being slaves. They're freed from being uh, under the domination of their pimps and other people who uh, dictate how they're going to live their lives and use their bodies. But even more, as they recover and as they find the grace of Jesus, he'll tell story after story after story that these women in particular, like the, the ones that I have uh, up here on the screen, they figure out that there are people in the world who can love them. There are ways to relate to other people that don't have to do with domination and being used for something that, other, that someone else wants to take from you. They find that there is good news about being human and relating to other humans where the, the previous years of their lives have been nothing but bad. And as the people of God, we have to find a way to extend the Great Commission into those places in our world, our neighborhoods, our own cities, where there are people who are, are sold for as sex slaves, where there are teenagers who are engaged in all kinds of sex acts that would have probably made sailors of most of our youths blush, uh, where our brothers and sisters, the people sitting next to us in church on any given Sunday morning are addicted to pornography, where children desperately try to understand attraction and gender in a world of absolutely unlimited choice. Somebody has to lead people out of that exile. And somebody has to stand up and say, there is a, there is a freedom to be found. Right? And what if the people of God stood up and took our place? in that arena? What if the people of God stood up and said, follow us? Because we're following Jesus, and Jesus leads us to freedom. He leads us to the freedom of, or the freedom from, rather, the continual dissatisfaction that comes from using and being used for gratification uh, that never really pays off the way that it's supposed to. And freedom from the prison of isolation that comes when each person is left to kind of battle through the experience of understanding their own body and sexuality, hormones and desires all by themselves. And that, by the way, in, in my own research, that's the number one problem that college students reported when they talked about how, how they developed their understanding of sexuality. The most common theme that they said in that part of their life was isolation. There couldn't possibly be anybody who understands this. The irony is we all understand it to some degree. 
Right? We've all been there and experienced those, those things and those feelings and those hormones and just the total chaos of trying to figure some of those things out. And yet we all feel totally alone. And so what if the people of God stood up and said, no, you're not alone, we're all going through it, and I'll walk through it with you. We start with our own children, and we extend that out to the people around us, to the cities that we live in, the communities that we're a part of. And we provide us, and we provide our friends, our neighbors, our brothers, and our sisters uh, freedom. Uh, freedom from the dissatisfaction with our bodies and with ourselves. Freedom from this nagging feeling that we'll never be enough to, to fully have the kinds of relationships that we want to have. There's a world in sexual exile. People who are lost and people who are searching for some kind of freedom that allows them to flourish as human beings in relationship. And we are the ones who have to help them get there. Which brings me to sexuality as mission. Sexuality as part of the great important work that God is doing and has always been doing in the world. Uh, we'll start with this one with uh, Genesis chapter 12, which I'm sure you're familiar with. When God calls Abram, he says, Go from your country and your people. Go from your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the world will be blessed through you. Now, there are really good scholars in the world, like Walt Brueggemann and uh, Glenn Pemberton of our own tribe, who have figured out and pointed out to people like me who are a little slower on the uptake uh, that this is the constant thread of mission. This is the biggest picture mission of God in all of human work, in all of human history. Is that he has said from the very beginning, his choice, I may argue why he decided to do it this way because it hasn't been all that easy a road. But from the very beginning, he said, I'm going to bless all of creation. I'm going to do it through my people. As soon as he calls Abram, he says, this, this is what we're doing. He tried to do it in the garden, sin, everything got thrown off. Right, so he calls Abram and says, I'm going to make a people, and through my people I'm going to bless the world. Right, and that has been God's big picture mission from the very beginning of human history until this very day. As we enter in the New Testament, the book of Acts, we see uh, the, the mode of that blessing changes, right? that uh, God is no longer kept in a place that the temple of God is now walking around and going into all the world and has this mission of uh, being a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so the people of God have always been created for this mission of being, part, being partners rather with God and blessing all of creation. Jesus put it this way, as I just said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In other words, get out there, go. Right? We're all familiar with the Great Commission, same general idea. That the temple doesn't stay in a place anymore. It goes and it infiltrates. And as the people of God, we have to be out among our friends and our neighbors. Uh, we have to be witnesses to the fact that uh, there's a way of, of understanding our identity that's strong enough to withstand our own doubts and the doubts that the evil one may throw at us, that... Uh, beats back and pushes away the lies that he tells us that, that says we're somehow in some way not enough. That in Christ there is a way to, to be fulfilled in romantic relationships that actually is the closest possible experience humans can have to the connection of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, where two become one flesh. 
in a way that at least echoes the connection that God has with Christ and the Holy Spirit. Witnesses to friendships that are closer than family, that are fulfilling in some of the deepest possible ways as well. In other words, sexuality can be fulfilled to the greatest possible extent by the body of Christ, by Christ himself, and the work of being together as his body. Paul said it this way, and I love this. Creation's waiting. Creation itself is waiting for the children of God to stand up and be revealed. And friends, I don't think there's ever been a time in all the history of the world in which all of creation, humanity and creation, is saying, somebody please help us figure out how we're relating to each other. In all the conversations I have outside of the church, people find out because inevitably I'm somewhere doing something and somebody asks what I do and we get to talking or whatever. And it's usually when I'm traveling. When I'm traveling, I'm usually going somewhere to talk about sexuality and that comes up. And when I have conversations with people outside the church, they are desperate for a better story about how we relate to each other. And they're tired. They're tired of using people and being used. I talk to college students who are fully engaged in what we call the hookup culture, right, of just meaningless sex as often as you can get it, and they hate it. It's totally unfulfilling. It never pays off the way that they think it's going to pay off. They don't have a better story. They're tired of uh, the unholy union of sex and power, of the situations in the world where uh, sex is used uh, to, uh, to, excuse me, sex is lorded over people and sex is used as a way of manipulating people uh, in all kinds of situations, in all kinds of environments. They're tired of feeling invisible and undesired. They're tired of settling for relationships that aren't what they should be just so they have at least a sense, at least a glimpse that somebody's paying attention to them and that somebody is uh, concerned about them. But they just don't know a better way to do it. They just don't have a better idea about how to relate and how to use the sexuality that God has put into us. But we do, friends. We are the people who know better. We are the people who know uh, that in Christ and through Christ we can learn to use our bodies and our emotions and our ability to connect in ways that lead to real human flourishing, in ways that everybody can win all the time, right? Uh, in ways that step out of the game where sexuality and our, our relationships with each other, uh, somehow there has to be a, a power position, there has to be a winner and a loser. Uh, but we know that in Christ, everybody can win and be built up. We know that there are ways to connect romantically uh, and in friendships, that can take us to at least within a, a hair's breadth of that ultimate fulfillment that we can find truly only in God. But we can get pretty close in our relationships, at least on our best days. Right? And the world around us is dying for those kinds of relationships, it's withering because they don't have those kinds of relationships. And frankly, our own people, our own young people in particular, are getting sucked into that too because we're not telling them a better story either. And so, my friends, that brings me to this thing that I've sometimes called the Evangelical Manifesto. I don't think we're supposed to use the word evangelical anymore, but we'll, we'll deal with that another time. Okay? And my, my position is this, that redemptive sexuality 
In other words, views and understandings of sexuality that lead especially to human flourishing, to grace, to forgiveness, and to ultimate uh, connection and, and, and relationship with each other. That is an evangelical imperative. One of my favorite books in my research was Christian Smith's book, Embattled and Thriving. It was a, just a, a sociological study on why for the first, uh, I guess the second half of the 20th century, how did evangelicalism thrive so well when other religious uh, forms and other uh, ideas weren't thriving? And what he really said was evangelicalism thrives when it engages in culture. And as I was doing my writing and my thinking on sexuality, the, the haunting thing that I couldn't get out of my head was, this is the one part of culture that we have not done anything with. And we are way behind the curve on that conversation. And if we are going to be God's people in the 21st century, I am absolutely convicted that we have to be people who engage in the cultural conversation about sexuality with a redemptive view of what it means to connect well and relate well. Now, that's a lot of work. And like I said, we are, we are way behind the curve on it. But here's what we do. We start the conversation. We start it here, we start it in our churches, we start it in our homes. It, there's nothing magical about it. I mean, there are people with wisdom. Uh, there are people that can help us uh, get further along in that conversation. And we need to, to rely on those folks as well. Mostly it's just talking. It's just trying to figure things out. It's, it's asking the Spirit to guide us in our own homes, in our own relationships, in our own churches. And relying on His wisdom to carry us bit by bit step by step, into a place where we can have these kinds of conversations, we can engage well with the culture around us, we can have a better story to tell when uh, we interact with people whose lives are being torn apart because they've bought into a version of sexuality uh, that is fundamentally using somebody for somebody's, somebody else's gratification, uh, that is thoroughly unfulfilling, uh, that is even uh, leads to, uh, to hurt and pain, there's, there's good news about sexuality. There's a, there's a euangelion. That's why I, I refuse to entirely let go of this word evangelical. Right? It comes from, comes from the gospel. It comes from the good news. There's, sexuality is one of the largest components of being human. And if we don't think that God has something positive to say about one of the largest parts of being human, then I, I think we're missing the boat here. Amen. It takes some digging around. Uh, it takes some looking at Scripture in maybe some different ways or, or engaging in some passages that we haven't engaged in another time and certainly engaging in conversations that we haven't maybe been comfortable engaging in in the past. But there is, there is a euangelion of sexuality. There is a good news uh, that we can and understand better ways to relate to each other that uh, we, can, we can use and express ourselves in our physical bodies in ways that fulfill us and fulfill ourselves, or excuse me, fulfill others, and that honor God. Uh, but we, we just can't be quiet about it anymore. That's, that's why I'm here, and that's why I was hoping somebody would show up to talk with me this morning. Right? Uh, because, especially in my work with young people, I can tell you, not speaking with young people, I can't think of another way to describe it other than abandonment. Not helping young people navigate sexuality right now in the world we live in is absolutely abandoning them to some of the most difficult questions that we've ever wrestled with as a society. 
And we expect them just to figure it out. And then we get disappointed with them when they don't figure it out the way we think they should figure it out. And in our churches, if we're going to be worth anything to the world, we have to help them. We have to help them figure out how they too uh, can relate in this, what is probably now the, the category of human experience that takes up more headspace than any other in almost everybody's lives. Because you just can't escape it, right? It's in your, it's in your hand. It's in the air. It's literally in the air. And it's on everything that you watch, everything you engage in, every song you listen to. Some narrative about sexuality and almost always narratives that are certainly not godly and certainly don't honor and, and bring out flourishing in human experience. Okay. And if we're going to be on mission with God in the 21st century, I am just really sure this has to be part of it. So, that brings up another bit of a problem. It's going to take us to our final uh, category of theme here. <coughs> Pardon me. Which is that if, uh, if I can manage to convince you that our churches and, and our homes need to be places where we talk about sexuality, and especially if our churches are going to engage in the cultural conversation about sexuality, we hit this next big problem, which is that we don't talk about things very well. Right? <laughs> Uh, and that's going to lead us to, to thinking of sexuality as hospitality. Okay. Here's what I want to say about that. First, we live in a world that literally cannot have conversations across difference anymore. Yep. Right? Uh, Bill, Bishop, Bill Bishop published a study which he said that uh, in 1976, about 25% of the United States lived around and interacted with people who believed exactly the same thing they believed, or you know, categorically the same things they believed. Right? In 2016, he says about 80% of the world, or 80% of the, the nation, lives and interacts with only people who believe exactly the same things they believe. In other words, we've insulated ourselves from any kind of conversation across any kind of difference. And especially if we're going to engage on God's mission in the culture and have something worthwhile to say about sexuality, we've got to find some better ways to talk. Okay? Or at least we have to find the courage to trust that the Spirit will lead us as we try to talk. Because it, it feels dangerous. Sometimes it is dangerous. Uh, so I, I grew up in California, Northern California. I went to school in Oklahoma and hung around there for quite a while afterward in my first couple of ministry jobs, and now I've lived in Chicago for 12 years. And so I've, my, my Facebook feed is populated almost right down the middle by red state and blue state people. Right? <laughs> Most of them don't know each other. But you would think they hate each other. And almost all of them are Christian people, because I've been in ministry all my life, and that's just most of the people I've been around. But you would think that they were on exact opposite ends of everything there is to think of in life. And sometimes it gets flat out hostile, and I know you all have all had that experience. But somewhere along the line, we lost the ability to have just civil conversations across differences. And so that's why I bring up this idea of hospitality. The Old Testament, hospitality is one of those themes that it's not spoken of as much in Scripture as it's just, it bubbles up all the time. And in the Old Testament, you see God has this thing 
where he tells Israel, you guys need to, to look out for the foreigner and the stranger in your land. Like when you see somebody out in the city square, you go get that person and bring them to your house. Do you know what is 100% guaranteed to be true for any Israelite who finds a stranger and brings them into their house? The one thing I promise is going to be true is that that person will believe everything in the world differently than that Israelite. Because the Israelites were weird. Right? They were the only monotheists in the world. They had an entirely different worldview than everybody else around them. And yet God says, when you see a stranger, you go get that person and you bring them into your home and you treat them like they're your family. You sit with that person and you talk about those things that are different because you have better news. You have a better understanding of how the world is created by Yahweh, the one true God. Right? You're not over there trying to figure out how to appease whatever gods you think are out there until ultimately you end up sacrificing babies and doing all kinds of horrible things because you just have to give them more and more and more and more because you're trying to figure out what makes them happy. You have a better understanding of how to live in community with each other. So God says, you go out there and you get those people and you bring them to your table. And that's what hospitality is supposed to be. Um... And the irony is that the, the church is exactly the place where we're supposed to be able to talk across difference. That's, that's, how the, that's how the whole community of God was established. That we are the people who can sit down with others and lovingly, calmly explain there's a better way for us to live our lives. Some thoughts about what hospitality means, uh, just from a couple ideas here. This is from Letty Russell, one of my, uh, again, favorites in, in this subject. That the practice, practice of hospitality uh, is the practice of God's welcome, embodied in our actions as we reach across difference to participate with God in bringing justice and healing to our world in crisis. Okay. That we reach out. We don't, we don't just sit back. Listen, I know I've been in church work all my life. I've been guilty many times in my life. I'm kind of just hoping people are going to walk in the doors sometimes. And they do sometimes, so it kind of perpetuates the hope, I guess. But first of all, as mentioned before, the Book of Acts works really, really hard to convince us that the church doesn't exist in a building anywhere. And second of all, hospitality, the Great Commission, Jesus' ideas about being witnesses in the world, all of those things tell us we're the ones with legs to get out there in the world. That hospitality is a thing, uh, is a, a mission for us to engage in conversation with people around us, to bring them into our homes, again, treat them as though they were our family. Um, it requires that we kind of move past the general claims to love all people. Okay? Christians love everybody. We can't speak in generalities anymore. Right? Hospitality says we don't just kind of passively claim to love all people, but we, we engage in the hard, hard work of welcoming human beings, real people, into the actual spaces of our lives. Right? It's literally the idea of making space for somebody else to engage and enter into our lives. It means uh, welcoming the stranger, those who are vulnerable, those who are excluded, those who are marginalized in some way, or oppressed in some way. Welcoming those who are different, who are inherently not like us in the way that they see the world, the way that they live their lives. Even 
if I could be so bold to quote Jesus, those who we see as our enemies. Matthew 25 is one of my favorite, my favorite passages to just think about. Especially when I talk and think about sexuality. Because the church for a long time has done one of two things. We have not engaged in sexuality whatsoever, in, in conversation about sexuality whatsoever. Or we have acted as though the first question out of Jesus' mouth when we get to heaven is, who are you attracted to and who did you sleep with? When Jesus tells his apostles how it's going to work, he says, he says here's, a, here's what it's going to be. Who did you feed? Who did you clothe? Who did you welcome? Who did you go visit? Like, who did you leave your home to go find? As we consider what it means to be hospitable with Christian sexuality, there is, there is a field of people out there who are desperately waiting for better news than what we've been offering them. Certainly waiting for better news than what they've just found and experienced on their own. I'm going to soapbox for just a minute, okay? I'm going to give you some facts, uh, and we're going to talk for a moment about our, our Christian relationship to the LGBT community. Uh, and I'll, I'll let the facts tell you why I think it's so important. From Andrew Marion's book, Us Versus Us, a, a book that you must read. Absolutely. Book that you absolutely must read. Uh, the largest study ever done on faith in the LGBT community Eight million people. There are eight million people in the world, in the, in the United States, rather, who are part of the LGBT community, which means they're, they're on this massive spectrum <clears throat> of understanding themselves and how they relate as something other than, I'm a man, and I want to be attracted to a woman, and I'm a woman, and I'm attracted to a man. And it's a massive spectrum, as I'm sure you probably know, right, of what that means. Right? But based on the numbers of those in the LGBT community and then those who uh, are in the LGBT community who would like to be part of a church, there are eight million of them out there who would walk into a church tomorrow if they felt like they'd be welcome there. Eight million of them in our country. Now, I'm not pretending that that doesn't raise a whole lot of difficult questions. I'm not going to try to gloss over that and say that it's, it's very easy or even that I can answer those questions for your church. Because I can't. Okay. Um, Pat and Sally are going to talk about that in a couple sessions here uh, this week, I think, so I encourage you to, to take those in. But there's 8 million people out there who are looking for a place where they can pursue God and can't find one. Uh, he points out that uh, most people in the LGBT community grew up in a church, 11% more than the general population. On a large-scale study, 11% is an enormous statistical difference. Enormous. And that's where he gets the title, Us Versus Us. The idea being, we're not, we're not standing against the LGBT community. We shouldn't be standing against the LGBT, LGBT community because there are people. And they are largely people who came from the church, more so, quite a bit more so uh, than the, the general population. And 90% of them say they wouldn't require their church to change their theology for them to go back. 
They just, they just want somebody to welcome them. Because most of them left because they felt unsafe. In the church. Most of them have stories, something along the lines of the fact that they feel like they, when they come to understand themselves as something other than the binary choice of heterosexual attraction. Okay? They come to understand themselves as something other than that. They feel like that part of their lives, that uh, experience of being human, means that they must now be atheist. Because they've understood, either explicitly because it's been said right out loud, or implicitly, which is more often the case, that there's no place for them among God's people if they experience the world some way in some different way. Barna recently published their study on Gen Z. Some of the things that pop out right there is that this current generation that's coming up as kids right now are two times more likely to identify as LGBT than millennials, the previous, the, the kids that are probably in college right now, and almost three times more likely than previous generations. Our kids are three times more likely than you and I were to identify as something other than heterosexual. 37% say their gender and sexual identity are very important to their sense of self. In other words, we are, our kids are learning that we are primarily a function of our sexuality. Uh, even that, that term sexual identity, that's, that is putting an awful lot of weight on what it means to be a sexual person. The horrible irony of these facts, and, and a lot of others we could talk about, is that the church is where the people who experience different understandings of sexuality feel like they are least safe. There are literally, literally millions of people out there experiencing same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, etc., who are looking to pursue God and they can't find a church where they can do it. Again, I... I can't solve this problem for you. I certainly can't do it in the next 10 minutes. Okay. But assuming that all of us have some influence and voice in our churches, we've got to be having this conversation. And it's difficult. It will always be difficult. But it doesn't require, it doesn't mean to, uh, to support, to pursue, to love somebody is not the same thing as, as consenting to everything they believe. It doesn't require massive shifts in theology. It requires massive shifts in how we love people and how we welcome them into our midst. And part of what I want us to understand about hospitality is the goal of hospitality is hospitality. The goal of hospitality is expressing the love of Jesus to people. That's it. If other things happen by the work of the Holy Spirit, praise God. But the goal of hospitality is hospitality itself. It's extending the welcoming presence of God to someone else. It's not winning an argument. It's not changing somebody's mind. Uh, it, again, doesn't imply that we agree with them or agree with uh, the things that uh, their life is about or how they understand the world. Listening to somebody isn't the same thing as aligning with somebody. It's just listening to somebody. Several years ago, I was teaching sexuality at, at my church with my youth group. One of my young ladies, we're, we're doing a night on uh, how we relate to our LGBT friends because everybody in every youth group in the world has an LGBT friend. And we're only about 10 minutes in. 
And a young lady in my group named Kathy, and she and I have talked about this before. She, she knows I, I tell this story every once in a while. She just starts to weep, like uncontrollable, ugly sob weeping. Uh, and we, like, we're just kind of getting warmed up. I've really only done the, the thing where I talk about you know, safe conversations and how we're going to talk about this objectively and that kind of thing. And she starts crying. I haven't even gotten into any real topics yet. And I asked her what was, what was going on. And she said, if you're about to tell me that I have to tell my gay friends they're going to hell, I'm leaving right now. I said, no. <laughs> that's, that's the wrong, we, we never start a conversation with, let me tell you why you're going to hell. We start a conversation with, let me tell you about Jesus. We start conversations with what it means to be a Christian, which is to love God with every ounce of our being love our neighbor as ourselves. We start conversations with invitation to press further into the grace and mercy and love of Jesus. Trusting that the Holy Spirit does in fact know what he's doing and is going to do the work that he's supposed to do. That he's going to lead us into truth. He's going to convict us of sin wherever it is in my life and in your life and everybody else's. And that ultimately pressing toward Jesus while holding the tension of disagreeing on, on some things that is a whole lot better than not pressing toward Jesus. That's the only factor in all the world that's going to change anybody, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have to hold that tension, that tension of, of what we call it invitation and challenge, of saying, I want to invite you to Jesus. And when we pursue Jesus, it is difficult. There are things, because then I have to open my Bible, you know, I open my Bible, there's all kinds of stuff that makes me really uncomfortable about my life. And there's going to be a bunch of stuff that makes me uncomfortable about your life. And we have to find a way to hold that tension. And most people in most churches can't do it. It's just too hard. Right? So we drop one of those things. We drop uh, the invitation and we become a challenge. And you have to kind of fit into this, this set of criteria to be a part of us. And that's how there's 8 million people out there looking for a place to explore Jesus and find Jesus and they can't. Or we drop the challenge and we go all invitation. And we don't really deal with the difficult questions of Scripture. And, and that's dishonest. So we hold the tension. Because we're the people of God. And nobody else is going to hold the tension. Because we're the people of God and we believe we have better news for the whole world about how we relate to each other and how we express ourselves and our bodies and how we find the fulfillment that every single one of us is really looking for. We're the only ones with those answers. Uh, oh, yeah, this is where I want to come. Sorry. My slides got out of order there. Because we know that in the end, and I'm not, I'm not dismissing anything about purity and holiness. I'm really not. I'm really not. I'm not dismissing it in my life or anybody else's. But I am saying I, I'm going to keep coming back to what Jesus says. That what he's really looking for is, really, and all this is, is the expression of, of loving God with our entire beings and loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's just how we do it. Right? That loving our neighbor as ourselves is, in fact, the expression of how we love God with our entire beings. So my goal, my hope, my prayer this morning is that we, we become the people who can extend the Great Commission into the places 
all the places of sexual brokenness, all the questions and all the ideas that we are reminded this morning and hopefully other times and other places going forward, Jesus did not, did not allow sexuality to keep people from his table. He just didn't. In scandalous ways, he didn't. And we shouldn't either. But somehow, some way, we find a way to open up the table of Jesus to the entire world. And we tackle hard questions, and we deal with difficult theology and difficult texts, and we wrestle with passages like Romans 1 that just are really hard to understand, at least hard to understand uh, in, in a way that, uh, that some of the, the rest of the world understands them. I, they're just hard. They're difficult. And we hold that tension. And we do it because we're part of the mission of God's people. We're part of uh, God's work in the world to lead people out of exile and out of the slavery. Uh, and, and honestly, what, what stronger form of slavery is there than the slavery of not knowing how to relate to people well? Or even worse, being in relationships that rob your life as opposed to uh, allowing you to really flourish as God has created us to flourish. So we make space for the others in our lives so they can access increasingly, maybe not perfectly, not perfectly, but increasingly, more and more the, the life-changing and, and soul-saving love of Jesus. That's the good news of sexuality, that this this collection of drives and ideas and feelings and emotions and desires that God instilled within every single human on the planet, it exists to drive us to Him, but on the way to Him, we can have relationships with the people around us that can be unbelievably fulfilling and in which everybody involved gets to flourish. Everybody involved presses further into the love of Jesus. When, you know, Paul prays for the Ephesians that they experience the love of Jesus together with all of God's people. And that with all of God's people, they grasp how wide and long and high and deep is God's love. And so, this is my prayer and my hope for us, that we take our place in the mission of God to bless the world by offering a redeemed version of sexuality, one that's really and truly good news about how humans can relate, find a sense of real fulfillment together and in each other. My prayer, friends, is that we revitalize Christian hospitality, especially in the world of sexuality. That's the frontier that we're in. That's, that's the place. That's the mission field of our world and our country right now. There are others, of course. There's eight million people out there looking for a place to love Jesus. And we're the ones who have the space. So it's incumbent upon us to make that space in our lives and in our churches, in our homes, so that all those who understand sexuality differently can come in, can sit around the table together, and together we can press toward Jesus with our lives, with our bodies, with our relationships. Let me pray, and we'll wrap up this morning. Holy God, this is big, big work, and we don't know how to do it. I think the fact that we're all gathered here at 8.30 on Wednesday morning is an expression of the fact that we don't know how to do it. But by your grace, 
through your love and through your wisdom, you have always guaranteed your people that when we stand up to speak, when we stand up to be light in dark places, your spirit will guide us. So we call on your spirit to fill each of us individually, to fill our homes and to fill our churches, to lead us in conversations, God, even if they're the very beginnings of conversations. <clears throat> and certainly as we get into the most difficult questions of our time and our culture and what it means to be a part of the church, what it means to be a member of a church and to serve in a church with people who have different ideas of sexuality. So God, guide us by your spirit, your whole universal Catholic church. God, guide us to be on mission with you to bless the world in an age in which sexuality is the, the dominant question that we're all wrestling, wrestling with. Bless your sons and daughters who are here with me this morning. God, as they serve as agents of redemptive change, redemptive influence in their homes, in their churches, in their communities. Uh, may we little by little turn the tide, God, in which the world sees the church as a place that hates and keeps out. They begin to see the world as a place that welcomes, and loves, and wrestles, and holds on to tensions, but in the midst of it continues to press toward you together. It's in the holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Really appreciate you coming. If you want to hang out for a few minutes, we can ask some questions. If you've got other places to go, you can do that as well. Can you tell us a little about your book and how, mm -hmm. where to get it if we don't get one? Okay. The um, book is written for specifically for parents uh, to help them create a home in which they can speak well of sexuality, but it, it can be you know, kind of useful in other situations as well, youth ministries and those kinds of things. Um, but it comes directly out of my own research, my doctoral research, uh, which is really about uh, what kind of cultures sustain good conversations about sexuality. So it uh, has a lot of sociological roots in it. Um, I wrote it as a story, so it's the, the story of a family, and they, uh, their young daughter comes home and asks them what sex is, and they go on this kind of journey of trying to figure out how they're going to deal with that in their home. Uh, I wanted it to be as short as possible, as easy to read as possible, uh, and as, as valuable as possible. Um, there's a lot of research in it, but it's all in the back, so you can skip all that part if you're not interested in it. Um, but the idea is to, to get something in people's hands that can help them really start to establish a culture in which they can speak well of sexuality. So, uh, it's available here for $10, available on Amazon as well. I think it's about uh, $12 on there, something like that. Check the other night, and they're actually almost out of them on Amazon. Which I have no idea how many they started with. It could have been ten, yeah. but whatever. They're almost out, so that made me feel good. Um, but yeah, I've, I've got them here. If you want to pick one up today, I feel like a nice salesman now. Yeah. Um. Uh. Not that ministering and reaching out to um, people who identify as LGBT is not important. Sure. But could you speak a little bit about to maybe those who are trapped in um, maladaptive sexual behavior, compulsive, addictive, yeah. whether it's pornography or staying in abusive relationships or whatever, and how we can minister to those. Because honestly, I have literally sat in a Sunday school class mm -hmm. and someone said that Christians addicted to pornography think they're saved and they're not. And the yeah. teacher just nodded his head and moved on. And I almost got up and sure. left. because. Sure. Um, it was like, that's not going to help. <laughs> so can you speak a little to that? Sure. You know, one of the, the studies I read recently, and I, you know, statistics are what they are, and, and I don't know how well we trust any of them, but uh, it was, it's a large-scale study. 3,000-some-odd um, people, I think, that were, study, or were uh, 
interviewed, suggests that about 50% of our congregation is addicted to pornography in any given Sunday on any given place. Uh, by addiction, they, I think they mean uh, experiences pornography at least once a month or something like that. Uh, so, so to your question, I think step one is we, we recognize that we are all people in recovery. We are all people uh, recovering from addictions of various kinds. Um, and a whole lot of us are trying to recover from addictions with sexual behaviors, pornography in particular. I, I always warn people when I talk about this in churches uh, that you're going to experience two things if you, if you open up this conversation. You're going to experience a whole lot of messiness. Right? Uh, and it's going to seem as though you have thrown open a floodgate because if you ever convince your people that they can be comfortable expressing their sexual brokenness, you're going to figure out that there is a ton of them out there. Amen. You're not, you're not generating them. Right? They're already there. Right? But when you shine light into that dark space, you figure out that there's a ton of them there. And honestly, most of them can, can find recovery if they just find honesty and light in it. Right? Most of them. The, the power of, especially something with pornography, the power of pornography and the power of sin in general is darkness. And when you put it in the light, it loses a lot of its power already. Right? It's big and scary. It's like a shadow. It's big and scary and overwhelming in the darkness. But you put it in the light, you figure out that there's not that much there. It's not, that's not to minimize it. And there are certainly those who need very, uh, very serious therapeutic interventions. But for a whole lot of people, it's the darkness, it's the secrecy that keeps us in bondage. And that's... It's true with all sin, but it's especially true of sexual sin. So one of the things I try to encourage every church to do is to bring it up, put it in the light. Right? I, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm primarily a youth minister at our church, and, and we talk about sexual brokenness all the time. And I've had parents make comments like, worried that we're producing sexual brokenness. Right? Uh, that somehow talking about it puts ideas in the kids. Says, I promise that's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> This puts ideas in key test, yeah. Is it okay if we talk a little bit about the fact that when we're discussing sexuality differences, we're not uh, just generically talking about sexuality brokenness. So those can be two different topics. Sure. sure. We need to be careful not assuming that sexuality differences are in fact brokenness. Right, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And that's, that is the heart of the cultural conversation right now, is, is what is brokenness and what is difference? Um, and, and certainly, if we're going to engage in the conversation, we have to learn how to, to do it gracefully. Are there right. not points that you have to address? There absolutely are. There absolutely are. There absolutely are. Yep. Uh, but I think the, the comment, looks like Mark, comment from Mark back there, uh, gets at the idea, at least the, the principle, right? uh, that we start with, we start with, commonality, we start with conversation, and then we, we do, in, in integrity and honesty and pursuit of holiness, we do have to bump up against, you know, when I see this text, I can't see it any other way than this. Um, that, that doesn't mean I'm going to kick you out if you see it differently. It means we're going to keep working on it and trying to figure out what we do with it. Right? Uh, but yeah, so uh, to, to Mark's point back there, we, we do need to be careful in 
uh, in our language, in our, especially our use of broken uh, terms like brokenness and sin, again, not to, not to push it away and pretend it's not there, because it is, um, but to at least not speak in ways that make it sound as though anybody who sees something slightly differently than I do is, is broken and sinful, or any more broken and sinful than I am. Maybe better, better. Okay, I'd like to make a statement. Oh. All right, go ahead, and I'll come back to DJ. Okay. If you need to leave, by the way, go ahead. I know we're, we're past our time. Christ tells us to love the person mm-hmm. and hate the sin. Mm-hmm. True? Is that true? Well, Christ didn't actually say that. No. Well, <laughs> it tells, it says in Leviticus that if a man sleeps with a man, he should, he sure. should uh, be detested and be right. kind of die. Right. So is that hate? It's not hate. So uh, it's, oh, okay. <laughs> this is why we need conversations, uh, because there's a lot to unpack in Leviticus that's, that's, that's deeper underneath the text than just that statement. I'm not, I'm not throwing the statement away. Okay? Um, you can't throw the statement away, uh, but there is more to say about it than just that. Uh, and then there is more to discuss than just, if that happens, God is done with you. Um, and, and that's, those are the conversations we have to figure out how to have, and they're difficult because we can't ignore Scripture. And I'm not, not in any way suggesting we do. We have a couple, or we had a couple in our church mm-hmm. that uh, left the church, well, for certain reasons. Anyway, what is it uh, where transgender? Sure. He, just, he decided he was transgender. Right. And his wife is body mm-hmm. and we tell them and I mean most of us have we love them as a person right but according to the Bible they're not right that's not right they're their their lifestyle mm-hmm. so that's kind of where sure. I was hoping we could get some right discussion well, about that. I would say a couple things one I would say by the way transgenderism is the ultimate expression of what it means to be human in the fallen world, which is you look at yourself, you say, something's just not right here. Right? It's just a, we're a place in time and history with uh, technology and affluence where we can afford to, to make those kinds of changes. Uh, but everybody looks in the mirror at some point and says, this doesn't feel right. Uh, Transgenderism is just a kind of a further expression of that same thing. Um, but you know, to your question, Mike, about what do we, how do we do, what do we, how, how do we respond? Um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a Christian, well, of course. How else would we work? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How we respond as a Christian. Um, I mean, I would, I would say this. I would, there are a lot of people in my church right now who do a lot of things that I think are sinful. Me being one of them. Um, and my goal is to, to wrestle with those things and, and point out, like, I, I feel like this is not okay because I, I see it in Scripture. Uh, and we, we wrestle with that, what that means. And some of those, again, especially uh, when you get into uh, passages in Leviticus 18, 21, those places, you start excavating those things, and there's a lot underneath those things that has to be, has to be talked about and questioned. Right? Um, and Glenn is actually blogging about it. What's that? Glenn's actually blogging yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah, he's doing, he's doing I mean, a great series. Absolutely, it is. Absolutely, it is. I didn't want to get really right. deep into it, but yeah, I just yeah, yeah. wanted a, a brief synopsis of sure. your opinion. So I, I, you just told me. All the time, people ask me, what do I do when mm-hmm. my child expresses that they're, uh, they're gay, or what do I do when one of my friends is transgender? And I, I tell them this. 
Your first response is, I love you. Exactly. Your second response is, what I really want you to do is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to do it here with me, and we're going to try to figure this out. Together. And I don't know a better way to handle sin I mean, I, of any kind, or, or handle difference, or handle uh, trying to understand difficult passages better than we're going to sit here together and try to hash it out and assume that, one, again, the Spirit's going to do what the Spirit's supposed to do, and two, if we honestly love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, He's going to figure out a way to get us through.